Light and salt, two great things. Pliny uh, once said, there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. He was a Roman orator, a naturalist, a philosopher, actually a contemporary of Jesus Christ. Uh, you guys know what it's like to be in relationship with each other. Uh, the message this morning is about our relationship with God and how it works through us to others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor uh, as yourself. There's a great uh, deal of preservative, of course, in the world today. And I think of beef jerky and how it lasts forever. Someone told me once that I was well-preserved. I, I took that as a compliment, actually, uh, probably related to the amount of consumption of uh, Hostess products that are finding their way back on the shelf in June or July of this year, which I'm pretty thankful for uh, as, as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 17 uh, begins our odyssey this morning through several passages of Scripture uh, that talk about our being in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Two different verb tenses there, in spite of the fact that in the English it comes across as just has gone and has come. Uh, the second uh, isn't just a happening, uh, but it has something to do with a, a present thing that has taken place and has continuing kinds of results um, in our lives. And so this new is intended to uh, go with us throughout the whole of our life as we commit our lives uh, to the person of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, the second verse on your screen, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ uh, all will be made alive. Now, we're not talking just about um, human beings, their physiologic mechanisms, and those kinds of things. We are talking about the genetic process, and we know that we are inheritors of those that have come before us and uh, started in Adam, uh, obviously, a long time ago. Uh, but also we're talking about fallen human nature. Uh, we are in trouble that way. And as in Adam, all die. It's not just physical, but it also relates to um, our spiritual problem uh, that we have before God. We are fallen creatures, fallen individuals. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we continue this idea of you in Christ Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The spiritual blessings that I can think of, of course, immediately are reflected in the little paragraph below up on the screen uh, in front, particularly in the green lettering, the saving events of Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. Paul wrote that... Uh, uh, we Christians are the most miserable of all if Jesus Christ has not raised from the dead. In other words, if he doesn't have the power of life itself, why in the world would we trust our life to him and expect to get from him uh, eternity with God? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, um, we see another passage that has in Christ. Uh, we have been chosen in Christ um, for the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption. That word, of course, is an interesting word, and it means to be 
purchased uh, uh, from the slave market or purchased from a former master and uh, sometimes set free. Uh, in that period of time, uh, you may not have been set free. You may have been purchased by another master. Uh, who was it, Dylan, that said we have to serve someone, somebody? And in this life, we're either serving ourselves or God. And that's the passage uh, that talks about um, a Jesus Christ redeeming us from this world's power that holds us and has us and uh, bringing us into uh, the safe and sure hand of Jesus Christ. Uh, we haven't been created divine. Uh, much of the chagrin, perhaps, of some of the uh, uh, Hollywood religious um, uh, authorities, I, I think of Shirley MacLaine particularly, who claimed that she was God. Uh, found out later, I guess, in her life that she was not. Uh, but that's, that's the leftovers of what's called the New Age movement. You remember that as we went through it and people thought that there, we were created with the spark of the divine inside us. Uh, scripture really doesn't teach that. It teaches, though, that we need to be redeemed from where we are and brought into new life. That's that passage that we looked at a minute ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That newness, of course, is what oftentimes we are after, and people actually search for that. We're purchased out of the slave market. We move from fallen to redeemed. We move from being oppressed by sin's effects to freedom from that. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 10, uh, we continue this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As new creations, we're created for now a purpose, and it's God's purpose that we're created for. This is a picture of why we're in Christ, to do good works. But it's through the works that God has prepared for us to do. Not the works that I think are good or the works that feel good to me, but the works that God wants me to be involved in. You remember that before Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we have verses 8 and 9. Talk about being saved by grace. Not because of anything we can do, but because of everything that God can do in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, uh, we continue this theme. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way. And I was thinking about that term enriched, and I was thinking about how I will not receive an inheritance. Um, everybody that could have given me something, they're long gone and they didn't have much. And some of you are in that same predicament. When we are, find ourselves as an heir, we find ourselves as inheritors. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read that we become God's children as we ask Jesus Christ into our lives. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on His name. In Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8, that theme is continued, but there... We're called heirs of Jesus Christ, joint heirs of Jesus Christ. That is, what God has, what the Father has, He gives to His Son, and His Son gives to us. And this is what it means in 1 Corinthians 1-4, to have been enriched in every way. Isn't that remarkable? 
Now, there's a little change in the next passage that we go to in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Instead of saying, you in Christ, it says, Christ in you. You remember what it was like to be in trouble, right? You know what it's like to be in a car. Um, I broke a window one time in the garage, and my sisters got home early, and they said, man, you're in big Dutch. I had no idea what that meant until my father came home. And I, I figured that out quite rapidly. Here we have uh, the picture, the change from uh, our being in Christ to Christ in you. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not a mystery any longer. Actually, when, when Scripture uses that term, it's not saying that it's not something that can be understood. It's just something that hasn't been revealed until now. And it's Christ in you which is being revealed. Well, is this a little bit like a teacher and a student together, Christ in you? You know, you have a teacher teaches you thoughts and ideas about the world that we live within. And we take those thoughts and ideas and we kind of absorb them and they become part of us. They kind of come into us. And so is this relationship like uh, the thoughts of a teacher in us? And although that's partially true, it's not completely true for the hope of illustrating and revealing to others the character of Jesus Christ can only take place if we actually can do what's involved in displaying the character of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do that. So he needs to be in you for that to take place. In John 14, 23, the Father and the Son say, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so that's definitely a much closer relationship than just student and teacher, unless you had a teacher stay with you in your home, which, of course, possibly could be. And then you knew that that relationship developed and became far closer, far greater than just the normal classroom situation. When we turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, we read something very different. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In that passage, it sounds like, well, I'm gone, and he's there, and that's it. He's the only one that's present. It's a little bit like the hand in a glove. Um, I was a veterinary surgeon for a, a good portion of time. I worked in an experimental medicine and surgery unit, and we used to use these thin latex gloves all the time, uh, for instance, for uh, abdominal surgery. Last uh, session, uh, someone got a little ill and left, so I'm going to be careful of my choice of words here as I describe this, but I remember having to feel what's inside the abdomen because I couldn't see. Just a small little incision, and you go down inside and you have to feel what's there, and you're looking for, in, in uh, some cases, a piece of abnormal tissue or a piece of tissue that's uh, diseased or hurt or injured or fragmented because of a gun shell or something of that nature. And you have to be able to feel these things and actually feel if that tissue is normal or not, just through the gloved hand. And I began to think, well, is that kind of what it means to have Christ in you? He comes into your life like a hand in a, in a glove, and then he kind of runs your life, a little bit like someone would run a puppet. But that's not what's meant by this either. It's, we don't, do not lose our individuality. We do not lose our perspective. God even has chosen to use our personalities, go figure, and help us to display salt and light 
uh, to the world that's around us. We still live in our body. You notice the second half of this verse in John uh, chapter, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the second half of the verse. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live, but I don't. That's kind of a mystery, isn't it? In other words, as Christ lives through me and I begin to display his character to those around, Jesus said it like this, I am the light of the world. Where we walk as Christians, there shouldn't be darkness. It should change. In John chapter 15, verse 4, uh, we move to an idea, this idea that it's a mutual indwelling. Abide in me and I in you. Both, both ways, it's said. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wasn't it interesting that uh, God chooses to use this uh, idea of the vine and the branch and then, and then the fruit? There's nothing like grapes. I, I love them. I remember being on a trek in Israel and going across the wilderness area for a long, long period of time in a hundred and some odd degree heat. And finally, we stop and we see in the distance a, a man coming towards us, just kind of in the wisps of mirages as it went across. And when he got to us, lo and behold, he had a huge amount of really cold, delicious grapes. And we loved that guy. And his whole point was, that's who Jesus Christ is. He's the one that can produce fruit in your life so that you become attractive to others. In John chapter 7, verse 37... Uh, we begin to read about the Holy Spirit and who He is in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is, is one that several passages say spills over like living water. Now, I want to tell you just a little bit about living water I, after I read John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So this is on the last and greatest day of the festival. It happens that he's talking about the festival of tabernacles. Now, people made tabernacles in their backyards during this period of time. Jewish believers still do that today. And they go and live in these tents in their backyard, these tabernacles, sometimes covered with leafy branches, etc., which is a picture of life and provision. It's a picture of God's provision for the Jewish people during the exodus from Egypt. You remember when they left Egypt, they left everything. And God provided for them in the desert with manna and, and with birds to eat and with water that actually flowed out of rocks, etc. And so they're celebrating that uh, picture uh, of God's provision by moving out into these tents into their backyards. This is the Festival of Tabernacles. Also at that time, 
the, the priests begin to celebrate this as well. And particularly on this last day, they bring water up to the temple. They bring it from the pool of Siloam, which is a long ways away. Actually, if you've been to Israel, you may have gone through Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem, which brings water to the pool of Siloam. It's a long tunnel, and it's an arduous journey, but it's life-giving water. And the priests would wash in that, and then they would go up to the temple, echoing the, uh, the idea uh, that, that we find in, in Scripture of uh, having clean hands and clean heart. Those are the ones that can ascend the holy hill. That is the hill that goes up to the temple. If you have clean hands and a clean heart. So they would wash in the pool of Siloam. This is the same pool where Jesus encountered a blind man and put mud on his eyes. Do you remember from that area? And, and then sent him up to the temple to be cleansed. And he sent him up this route, the same route that the priests would use, and they would use this route particularly on this last great day of the feast to bring water from the pool of washing, the pool of Siloam, all the way up these long steps to the temple and to the altar. And then they would pour this water out on the, on the base of the altar. It's as they're doing this that Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the living water. I'm the fulfillment of the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah, both of whom said that living water will pour out of the temple. And so the priests are giving the people the picture of God as a living spring of water. And just as they are doing that, Jesus stands up and proclaims who he is. It's a remarkable scene. In John chapter 16, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's the spirit that Jesus is talking about when he says, you will have the spirit within you and he will produce living water. In John chapter 4, verse 13, we have a little more about water. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Some of you know this story. It's one of my favorites in Scripture. Where Jesus met this woman that has had kind of an untoward life. And she's out there by herself. She's getting water from a deep well. And they get into a conversation. And it ends up with Jesus talking to her and saying, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. It's just average well water. Good water, but well water. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Arthur Miller, uh, in his autobiography, Time Bends, wrote about his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. He had watched her descend into the depths of depression and despair. He feared for her life as he watched uh, their relationship crumbling uh, as well due to his wife's paranoia and her continued addiction to barbiturates. One night after another physician had been persuaded to give her yet another shot. It reminds me of the Michael Jackson scenario where a physician came in and 
gave him anesthetics so that he could sleep. And then finally, he just slept on and never did wake up. Miller stood by Marilyn Monroe as she slept. And he says this, I found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were to wake and I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And she were able to believe it. Beneath it all, he had an awareness that God was the only one who could fill the void. Satisfy the thirst uh, that would come again. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 is where that passage comes from that was quoted in the video earlier. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Where there is light, there isn't darkness. Where there's salt, there's flavor. There's preservation. There's security uh, as well. Perhaps it's time for us to look beyond our frustrations and fatigue and our list of sins and see again the God who continues to pursue you. He's not sitting back with his arms crossed like this, waiting to see if you can pull it together. He's trying to bring you to him. But in the process, he's not trying to convert you just so you can go to church, be good, and make your mom happy. Jesus didn't die so you could only perform religious duties. He died so that you can be in a divine romance with a living God. Isn't that remarkable? He really wants to be that close to you. Out of that union, everything flows. He's more concerned about you than all the sacrifices, energy, and time that you've committed to Him. Well, many atheists have had uh, pretty severe dilemmas in life. One of them I, is named Jordan Mong. She was a, a scholar at Harvard, and she began to wake from atheism and began to think, well, maybe deism is, is true. She began to think, well, there must be a God, but I don't think he's very interested in me. But indeed, that God is interested in us in a very personal fashion, a very personal way. And I want to read a quote from her, and I think it's lengthy. I think it's perhaps of value to us. I wouldn't stay a deist for long. A friend gave me a, a, a book, Ask Me Anything, which included the Christian teaching that love is a commitment of the will to the true good of the other person. This theme of love as sacrifice for true good, struck me. Isn't that what strikes most people about Christianity? As they see people loving without expectation of return. If they see people loving you because of your good, not something they will gain from it, they begin to see who God really is. The cross no longer seemed a grotesque symbol of divine sadism, but a remarkable act of love. God demonstrating his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were perhaps waving our fists still at him. And Christianity began to look less strangely mythical and more cosmically beautiful. The next slide continues this. This walk 
has proved to be quite a journey. I've struggled with depression. I would yell, scream, cry at this God whom I had begun to love but didn't always like. But never once did I have to sacrifice my intellect for my faith, and He blessed me most keenly through my doubt. God revealed Himself through Scripture, prayer, friendships, and the Christian tradition whenever I pursued Him faithfully. I cannot say for certain where the journey ends, but I have committed to follow the way of Christ wherever it may lead. When confronted with the overwhelming body of evidence I encountered, when facing down the living God, it was the only rational course of action. I came to Harvard seeking veritas, truth. Instead, he found me. Isn't that fun? The word veritas, of course, is the Latin word, and it's carved into the marble um, uh, mantelpiece in Loeb House at Harvard. So people can see it and see truth. That's why we're here. You, you remember that Harvard started out as a congressional, uh, congregational, not congressional, a congregational and Unitarian cemetery, seminary. <laughs> and how far from the truth has it occasionally moved? But they are continuously reminded of veritas, of truth. And literally the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's our way into the relationship with God, is through Him, through His plan. I am the way, Jesus said. Paul writes this in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The message reads like this. Awake, O sleeper, get out of your coffin, and Christ will give you light. I remember, I reminded of the verse... Uh, in Revelation chapter 3 that was written to the Laodicean church, uh, a lukewarm church. And Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Speaking of the door of your life, and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him, sup with him, and he with me. That's that kind of thing where uh, he comes in and he makes his home with us. It's stronger than the teacher-student bond. It's way different than the a hand in the glove, the running the puppet from the inside. It's not that at all. Christ wants to live within us, to give us both flavor and brightness. He's involved in our personal transformation in Christ. He can provide salt, light and salt for our community. We're rescued from darkness of sin to the light of salvation. From darkness of hate to the light of love. From the darkness of greed to the light of contentment. From the darkness of hopelessness to the light of hope. So let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That passage in Hebrews chapter 10 reminds me of another passage that's very close by. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There's a reason that we assemble ourselves together. We can enjoy who Jesus Christ is through the lives of those that are committed to being salt and light in the earth that we're there. I want to end with a passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for being light to us. 
for being preservative in our lives. But Father, we're not preserved just because we're worth that. We're preserved so that we can tell others, show others, live before others, so that our light will shine before men. Help us not to hide our light under a bushel. Help us to be generous with what you have given us as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.